that yeah I know well and this intro as well okay so good morning all right we're gonna go ahead and get started in the next minute or so on our class on the minor prophets Justin and I are gonna be zipping through these at a, a quick clip because we're doing at least two each time two minor prophets so I thought, I thought we might begin. Can the Lord be with you? Let us pray. O Lord, as you have spoken your word through the generations, through your servants, the prophets, to your people Israel, may we attend to their message, that we may find it a new and life-giving word for our own time. We ask this through the word made flesh, Jesus, your son. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a little frog in my throat this morning. Um, but at least it's not a big frog. So we're going to be going through this class fairly quickly. Today we're doing an overview, thinking about prophecy in general and what sort of person the prophet is. And then we're going to talk about Amos and Hosea. So if that's not an ambitious goal for less than 45 minutes, I don't know what is. So let's go. On your handout here, on the first page, there's a little chart that I put together based on uh, a great book by uh, a Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel called The Prophets. And this, his book is a little bit dated, but I think it still has a lot of great stuff in it. In his first chapter, he talks about what sort of man is the prophet. He's writing in the mid-20th century, and all the language is masculine pronouns. But all the minor prophets were men anyway. So he says that certain things characterize just about all prophets. <clears throat> One of them is they are abnormally sensitive to evil. So things that you or I would think of as trivial. Uh, you know, somebody in a business sort of makes false claims about their product, or uh, someone cheats someone and doesn't give them as much change as they're owed. Whatever it is, even trivial evils to the prophet are a life-shaking catastrophe. Um, they may seem almost hysterical at times over evils that we may think of as fairly kind of every day, just the price of doing business. But to the prophet, it is, it is catastrophic. Another thing is, uh, that goes along with this is they're attentive to concrete trivialities. So whereas the, the philosophers of the ancient world and um, wisdom sages, sages thinking about uh, wisdom traditions, proverbs and idioms and things of that nature, they often thought about abstractions and kind of high lofty thoughts. Um, you know, they grappled with issues like matter and being. What is existence and what does it mean? Well, when we turn to the prophets, we're all of a sudden in the realm, in the muck of everyday gritty reality. Um, how are orphans being taken care of or not? So rather than talking about logic and aesthetics, matter and being, we're talking about uh, wages and labor and things like that. They're also, um, their word is luminous and explosive. It sparkles with this sort of divine radiance that blinds the eye. Uh, so it's kind of the opposite of, you know, William Wordsworth said that poetry is emotion recollected in tranquility. Isn't that nice? Poetry is calm 
and collected and contemplative. Well, the prophet is the opposite of Wordsworth's definition of poetry. They explode with a sense of God's own um, call to the world, and their own message um, is often a strain upon the emotions. To read the word of the prophets is wrenching one's own conscience out of a state of complacency into a state of being uh, agitated and un uncomfortable. The prophet values the highest good, so they are almost single-mindedly focused on God and what God wants. So whereas there were other things that the ancient world valued, wealth, wisdom, might, the prophet disdains these things in favor of what God cares about. A great example of this from Jeremiah that I gave you is, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast of his might, nor let, let the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast that he knows God. So for them, they're single-mindedly focused on the highest good, which is God. Not, not wealth, not strength, not power. The gospel is often, not the gospel, the prophet is often an iconoclast. So all of the things that the world and their culture cherish and the institutions that their culture cherishes, nothing is a sacred cow too sacred for the, the prophet to question or push over if it isn't God. So this includes the monarchy, <clears throat> whatever, uh, the patriotism of whatever nation they are prophesying within, but also the temple cult itself, or in the case of northern prophets, the cult in Samaria. Uh, we'll hear about that in Amos in a second. The g prophet often makes sweeping allegations. Uh, because they are th this fevered, hot, heightened pitch of awareness of evil, um, they kind of paint with a broad, broad strokes on a wide canvas. And so they may make even what we might think of as almost unfair generalizations about the extent to which uh, all the people are evil. Um, their concern isn't really with statistics. You know, they're not counting how many people are wicked and then, you know, charting it out. But this truth that stands behind these generalizations, which is that few, even if few are personally guilty, all are responsible for the ills of their society. Um, so an example of that is in Hosea. So we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to Hosea. The prophet is often lonely and miserable. Um, Amos himself complained, everyone hates the one who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. I think there's a bit of autobiography that we're hearing in Amos's words. So he's not just talking about generalized people that reprove or speak truth in the gate. He's talking about himself, too. Um, and this is a, a consistent theme. The prophet alienates those around him, not only the wicked, but even the relatively pious um, by shaking them out of their complacency, uh, challenging the institutions, um, questioning even piety and the worth of piety. And so a lot of people find the prophet un just unacceptable. They, they're, no one wants to be around them. They make fun of them. They are, get angry at them, etc. And lastly, and I think this might be the central one to think about the prophets we're going to talk about today, the prophet experiences personally the pathos of God. Pathos it comes from a Greek word that means suffering or experience, and more broadly it can mean kind of emotionality or feelings. The prophet is privy to the emotional life of God and God's own pathos, and they experience this in an overwhelming way, and it boils over into their message that they convey to the people. 
And so the prophet's own emotionality is both sort of overwhelmed by and co-experiences God's pathos, but they also, the prophet, feels compassion for the people who they are, after all, a part of. They are one of the people. And so at times they may stand between the, the knowledge of the coming wrath of God and their own allegiance to and love of their own people. So sometimes they stand as a sort of bridge. Um, so we'll see that in Amos. So those are some generalized things that we can say about prophets in general. I would encourage you to just hang, if you're going to come to this series, hang on to this sheet and think about these characteristics as you go through all the minor prophets. But for now, let's turn the page and we'll look at some of, two of the minor prophets in particular, Amos and Hosea. So I sort of called Amos a southern farmer in the big city. That's kind of what he is. Amos is a rural Judahite, so from the southern kingdom, coming north to the more prosperous, wealthier, uh, and more powerful kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, to prophesy there. We know a little bit about him. Um, he said that he was a shepherd from Tekoa. That's in the introduction to, to Amos. And he later says that the Lord took him from tending the flock and told him, go prophesy to my people Israel. So, and he also said that he was a dresser of sycamore trees. The sycamore fig um, needs to be kind of tended in a certain way to really uh, fruit most fully. He does also, this, there may be some, you know, we can see this not only in the introduction and in his own testimony that this is who he was, a herdsman and an uh, agricultural worker, but also in his images. He reaches for agricultural images, um, images of planting and rowing, uh, sorry, of sowing, of um, taking care of flocks or of flocks being attacked fairly often in his prophetic images. To kind of contextualize when he was active, Amos was active um, in the 8th century in Israel. So this is before uh, Israel is attacked by Assyria and destroyed and sent off into dispersion and essentially lost to a great extent. Israel is actually under Jeroboam II at the height of its power. Jeroboam has expanded the borders. He uh, is making trade um, deals with other surrounding nations who send him gifts to curry his favor. There's a great deal of wealth moving through Israel, and a lot of people are quite prosperous and uh, pretty satisfied with how things are going in Israel. Um, he begins his prophecy with a series of oracles against the nations. So he opens... He opens, uh, the Lord roars from Zion, and then he has these oracles against various nations. And he says things like, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then he says what that punishment will be, and he'll go into the details of what exactly Damascus did wrong. The things he accuses various nations are of, of doing are fairly general. They're kind of, as it were, things that sort of any human being ought to have a sense that this is wrong. So betrayal, um, gross, what we might call human rights violations, uh, war crimes, and the like, are the sorts of things he accuses them of. Because remember, these nations don't have a covenant with God. So God can't really pick a bone with them for not keeping the covenant. But he names these sort of generalized things that I guess the assumption is everyone knows you don't do this. 
So genocide is one of the things one of these is accused of. Uh, attacking civilians during war is another one. So he accuses various nations, and the audience would be saying to themselves, all right, yes, okay, tell us how God is angry at all the surrounding nations. We can get behind this message. But then Amos goes on to say, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So the audience would say, oh, wait, Judah, that's, those are our fellow Yahwists who follow the same God as us, and this guy, isn't he a Judahite? So that would, that, would turn some, that would catch some ears and turn some heads. He accuses Judah of rejecting the law of the Lord. Because Judah, like Israel, is in covenant with God. So now God can get more specific. They have not kept the Lord's statutes. And they have been led astray by the same lies in which their ancestors walked. So God will send a fire on Judah and devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. The Israelite audience, that this, this kind of farmer, maybe a wealthy farmer, but farmer from Judah, has gone north to give this message. His Israelite audience would think, okay, that's a little surprising, but, you know, okay, we're Israel. He's not prophesying against us. But lastly, and in the sort of focal position in the list as the last entry, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then we get into some of his complaints about the people he's actually prophesying to and the way life is going on in Israel. So we get this idea here that Amos is aware of God's anger or uh, uh, pathos, his indignation against all the nations, but even against the two nations he is especially uh, aligned with, that he especially looks out for, Judah and Israel. His, his wrath and anger about anyone who is who is grossly violating um, just sort of the normal bounds of human decency. But for Judah and Israel especially, they should know better because they have the covenant. He characterizes, Amos does, God um, roaring. He uses this imagery, and he even compares God to a lion. So the book itself opens in verse 1, chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion. And then picking up on the same verb later on, he talks about um, a list of sort of natural things that one might observe in the natural world, and then tries to make a comparison between those signs, and this is in the same way we can know what God is thinking. So he asks, does, not, does a lion roar in the forest unless it has prey? Or does a young lion cry out from its den if it has caught nothing? And then he says, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can help but prophesy? So Amos conveys that he is almost bowled over and overwhelmed by this message from God, which is as sort of shaking, as, as shaking to the core as the roar of lion. Have you ever been at the zoo and you're close enough to the, the lions when they roar? You can feel it in your chest. It is an overwhelming sensation. <clears throat> and Amos will again use the image of a lion when he's talking about the way Israel will be, um, will be punished. So he uses this kind of imagery throughout the book now and then. And so the Lord's uh, wrath is, is comparable to that of a lion. The Lord is 
upset, uh, angry even, over this lack of justice in Israel. Oh, there's another one. Okay, so here's that other image. Later, he says, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or the piece of an ear, that is a torn lamb, so shall the people of Israel who live in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch or part of a bed meaning they're going to be, as it were, torn up by the trouble coming upon them. And some of them may be snatched from the mouth of disaster, but not all of them. So it's pretty intense imagery, isn't it? Uh, this is not a comfortable... His, his prophecy starts out fairly comfortable if you're an Israelite. All right, stick it to all of our neighbors. Uh, and then he mentions Judah, and they'd say, well, okay, I guess. Um, that's a little surprising, but it's not us. And then he has a lot to say about Israel. So let's hear about what exactly is such a problem. One of Amos's major themes, sorry, I'm just going to take this thing out, is economic injustice. So he accuses the people of Israel of, uh, they have a great amount of wealth. Remember, Israel is just living high off the, ho- high, high off the fat of the land. They're, they're uh, wealthy, they're feeling good. Um, I got, I mixed my idioms there. But they are, they are feeling pretty, you know, feeling pretty good. That is, some of them. Not perhaps all of them, maybe not even most of them. But some of them are really having a great deal of wealth passed through their hands. Tribute and trade is passing through the country. Uh, successful war brings in a certain amount of uh, slaves captured as prisoners of war and seized wealth as booty. Um, and so they're, they're, they're pretty good. But Amos comes into all this uh, fabulous wealth, and instead of admiring all the new building that's happening, uh, the beautiful architecture of Samaria, the art and the decorative arts, uh, the music, instead of admiring these wonderful things, he sees the poverty of some members of society and how they are ignored. And he said, look, while y'all are admiring how well off you are, you should be grieving and mourning and doing something. So he says, the rich sell the righteous for silver, and they sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust and push the afflicted out of the way. So where some members of their society are excited that they're in this cultural high, um, Amos says, you should be grieving that the poor are mistreated. Uh, Both in terms of some of these, selling the righteous for silver really is those who have gone into debt because of uh, uh, predatory business, uh, farming, or labor practices. And then eventually, if they go into too much debt and they can't pay it back, they have to be sold into slavery to pay off their debt. While others are admiring the beautiful architecture, as we mentioned, uh, Samaria had a lot of um, trade wealth coming in. Samaria was uh, building and growing at this time. Amos looks at the same things and says, because you trample the poor and take from them levies of grain and you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. So looking back at what we said about what kind of person the prophet is, this goes along with the fact that the prophet is almost... Uh, single-mindedly, almost obstinately focused on one thing and one thing only. And they're almost hysterical about 
an amount of, uh, you know, back, a background amount of evil that you or I might just think of, well, that's just the world. That's how the world works. Of course, there are poor people in the street. The prophet cannot turn their eyes from that. The prophet couldn't go somewhere as a tourist and just tour the place and say, look how wonderful everything is um, and how great the buildings are. If they looked down the alleys of that city and saw the poor, that's all they would be able to focus on. Amos calls out uh, a prevalent sort of culture of luxury and leisure. Um, he doesn't exactly call out leisure in and of itself as an evil, but it's leisure coupled with callousness to the needs of the poor. Uh, there's not a just distribution um, so that people don't have sort of their human dignity and their ability to live uh, within society as the covenant laid out by God, given to Moses, stipulates that all of the people should have a certain amount of uh, family inheritance. They should keep their family land. Um, if sold into slavery, they should be freed every now and then. So he accuses those who are part of this culture of luxury. And so this is a really kind of funny picture that I found of the cows of Bashan somebody drew. Um, this is the cows of Bashan he's talking about here are actually some of the women of this high society. Uh, but he compares them to the especially well-fed uh, cows that were on the verdant hills of Bashan in Israel. So here this, you cows of Bashan who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring me something to drink. And then he goes on and says some, yeah, here's trouble coming. I didn't put that up on the slide. So uh, similarly, uh, you know, so leisure and indifference to poverty often go together. So Amos is going to call out uh, this culture of enjoyment of all the good things in life and feeling satisfied if it's at the expense of others. He says, alas for those who are at ease in Zion. Again, here he's calling out Judah again. Zion is Jerusalem, but then he's going to return to Israel again. And those who feel secure on Mount Samaria, Mount Samaria being the capital of, of uh, Israel. Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So that's the kicker at the end. It's not necessarily that the good things of life are evil, but they do not even care that Joseph, that is, the descendants of Israel, are in ruins, but some of them are wealthy. Amos is an iconoclast. He's willing to push over the sacred cows uh, of Israel, um, both political and religious. Uh, so some of them are religious observance. He says, you know, the temple, uh, not the temple, but the, the cult in Samaria is worthless. Even the worship of the Lord is worthless if it's not done uh, with justice and also if it's mixed in with the following of other gods and other practices from other peoples. Um, he also says that there's national iconoclasm. Israel is just one nation among many. So he has that long list at the beginning of nations being condemned, and Israel is just one more in the list. Um, elsewhere, he says to Israel, are you not just like Ethiopia to me, O Israel? Meaning like just one of the other nations. And he mentions other peoples who he brought from one place to another, that God says he brought from one nation to live in another land, just as God says, I brought you out of Egypt. So Israel is 
is among an international group, and they're just one of them. Um, they're not necessarily better than the others, and so they shouldn't presume on their special relationship. They know God in a special way. They have the covenant, but that doesn't mean that God isn't going to judge them the way he judges the nations. Um, so an example of this is in Amos, he's condemning religious festivals and observances. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. That's pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty harsh word to people who are going and offering uh, calves and money over to God to be burned or to be slaughtered and shared among the community. For Amos to just waltz in this southerner with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, fig leaves hanging out of his pockets and hayseed in his hair, saying, uh, God says I hate your assemblies. This is pretty intense. Instead, he says, take away the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So, and this is important to parse out. Amos, nor are the other prophets, inherently against religious ritual and observance. Piety isn't necessarily bad, but there's a way that piety can be used to sort of mask other demands that God has. And Amos, as are other prophets, is willing to say, look, if we're going to get right down to it, God would rather you be just and merciful to your neighbor than come to the temple at all. I mean, if you have to choose. So don't think that you can do all this other stuff and uh, trample your neighbor and that God's cool with that. So as you might imagine, uh, Amos found some enemies, this, this uh, presumptuous southerner telling us what to do. So when he went to Bethel, which was sort of the main cultic center of Israel, the main place in Israel where the Lord was worshipped, a priest there named Amaziah uh, told him, go away. Like, you're not, your services are not wanted. He said, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and earn your bread there. Prophesy there, but never again prophesy in Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and a temple of the kingdom. So you can't just waltz around being an iconoclast, pushing over pillars, uh, figuratively or literally, and think every, you know, people are just going to ignore you. So Amaziah says, go home. And to this, this is where I'll go back a couple things. He was, he's called a seer. Go home, O seer. That is what Amaziah said. Amos says over here on the right, look, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I'm a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. It may seem a little weird to us, Amos saying, I'm not a prophet. He's one of the minor prophets, uh, actually the earliest in terms of chronology. But what he means by this is, I'm not a professional. You know, you're saying, I'm just in it for the money. Go earn your bread in Judah, is what Amaziah says there. Go pull your salary somewhere else, because we're not, we're not listening. Amos says, look, I'm, I'm here because God told me to come up here. I'm a farmer. But God said, prophesy to Israel, and here I am. And then after this, he has some... He said, because you told me to go home, here's what God is going to do to you and the temple and the people here in Samaria and Bethel. So it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty intense. Uh, we would be looking at passages all along the way because there's some really spicy passages here. Um, but we don't quite have the time. 
because of the time pressure. Amos then, at the end of the book, he has this series of uh, several visions, five visions of the impending wrath of God is going to be expressed in some kind of disaster upon Israel. And in the first few, Amos has a vision, and then he tries to ask God, have mercy, God, don't do this thing that you've showed me a vision of. Please don't. But the visions continue and become overwhelming, and the, this sort of intervention on the on behalf of the prophet for the people of Israel sort of gets silenced along the way. And the judgment, the word of impending dude, is allowed to stand. Although there's a tiny word of hope at the very end of the book. But these visions include uh, a swarm of locusts in a dream, and so, uh, but Amos prays and God relents in chapter 7. Uh, later in chapter 7, there's a vision of a fire um, that dries up water, even the waters around the land, and devours Israel. Amos prays and God says, okay, I won't do it. And then there's this vision of the plumb line. Um, God compares Israel to a crooked wall that you can tell easily by hanging a plumb line from the top isn't straight. And God says he's going to destroy Israel's high places and its sanctuaries. All these grand buildings that people are so proud of um, that Amos seems blind to their beauty, they're going to fall anyway. He compares Israel in another vision to a basket of ripe fruit that is then going to uh, become... Uh, overripe and and rot and dry out. So God is going to send death and destruction and darkness to Israel uh, and is not going to listen to their pleas. And then the Lord is by the altar in the final vision um, telling Amos to strike the tops of the temple pillars. Um, you can understand, again, why Amos gets in trouble for this sort of action. Uh, and in addition to their words, prophets prophesied by their deeds, the things they do. So prophetic action can be another type of oracle. In this case, striking the tops of the temple pillars, uh, the temple in Bethel, to show that God will destroy the Israelites and they will be crushed as the temple collapses around them or killed by the sword. Um, as the, Eventually, it turns out to be the Assyrians attack them. Another trope that Amos brings up is the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, we get the sense that this was uh, expected by some Israelites as the day that the Lord will vindicate his people. He will uh, come and show himself to be a mighty warrior on their side and crush their enemies. But Amos says, the nations stand under the, the, the judgment of God. Yes, we've talked about that. But so do you. So you should think twice about hoping for the day of the Lord. Alas, for you who want the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? So again, Amos is, as it were, bowled over, overwhelmed, and, and the mouthpiece of God's anger at injustice. God is not complacent about the wrongs that are happening in the midst of the people. And Amos says, cut it out now, stop now. Maybe God will turn from his wrath and stop, but if you don't, overwhelmingly the word in Amos that he gives to Israel is one of impending doom. And as we know historically, uh, not long after Amos's prophecies, Israel was brought into exile and essentially lost to history. So another Israelite prophet, Hosea, is distinctive to be the only native northern Israelite voice who we hear speaking clearly in his own uh, cadences and own dialect. We hear, have here uh, the voice of northern Yahwism, 
where overwhelmingly the Old Testament is written from the point of view and passed through southern, that is, Judahite editors. Um, so the northern Israelites had their own kind of distinctive expression of how they followed the same God, the Lord. Um, so northern Yahwism was perhaps different. But we'll hear that Hosea has some pretty strong things to say to Israel as well, though. Oh, this, by the way, is uh, from um, a uh, illustrated... Um, illuminated manuscript from 1372, I think it is, and uh, Biblio, what was it? Biblia Historial, I believe it is. So Hosea was married to a woman named Gomer. Um, in fact, the very beginning of the book opens with this marriage. The Lord spoke, to, when he first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said, go take for yourself a, take for yourself a wife of uh, whoredom, or adultery, or prostitution, any of these words, um, or wantonness, perhaps, and have children of whoredom or prostitution. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This is going to be one of the prevailing metaphors in Hosea, which is what makes it one of the most disturbing prophets to read. Um, in a lot of ways, this is a it's very strong. This is not a PG-13 metaphor um, for what is wrong with Israel, how, what we're going, how we're going to think about it. And so Hosea does this. His own biography is, in a sense, his family life is one of these prophetic actions. So remember, prophets prophesy in word and in deed. His whole family life is a prophetic act. He marries a woman who, we don't know that she was a prostitute when he married her. It could meant that she was sort of a... Uh, uh, you know, so inclined to be kind of uh, playing the field and, uh, you know, uh, you know, a little bit on the, just in touch with her earthy side. We don't know, but at some point during the marriage, she commits adultery with Hosea. And so the whole family becomes a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. Um, but there's another family metaphor that uh, Hosea uses as well. The thing about his family is... Um, it's kind of hard to say. Did Hosea's tragically sad, unhappy family life lead him to understand God's grief in a new way, a new way that he then conveyed this new understanding to Israel because he has experienced this terrible kind of sadness and anger and uh, nostalgia for when things were good and sweet and they were first courting each other. Um, that he brings this new understanding to how God is sad and angry with Israel? Or did God initiate the marriage altogether, as it seems to say at the very beginning of the gospel, to help Hosea understand how God already felt? In other words, we could look at it kind of psychologically, that it breaks open his understanding of God's sadness, or we could look at it as God set this up all along so that Hosea would know this about God's own feelings. But either way, just as Amos was privy to and really overwhelmed by the pathos of God, uh, in, in Amos's case, his, his, his anger, his indignation, uh, his fury um, over this terrible injustice that was rampant in Israel, Hosea is also privy and overwhelmed by the pathos of God. God's terrible sadness, his sense of betrayal in a new way, uh, just as Hosea experienced his, in his own family. Gomer becomes a metaphor in, in this, his prophecy for Israel itself. And her children, Jezreel 
Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami become metaphors for, that is, the, the general people of Israel, uh, the individual children of, and, 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 you know, the tribes of Israel and the, the descendants and individuals within the nation. So the names given to these kids, Jezreel is the name of a valley where God says he will punish the people there terribly. Lo Ruhama means not loved, and Lo Ami means not pitied. Can you imagine your, naming your children not loved and not pitied? I don't think I would name my cats that. So, so this is a terrible, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of tragedy shot through when you think about this family. Um, I wouldn't want to be part of an object lesson, uh, right? I don't want you to marry me as a part of what you're trying to tell the people who live around us or name my children not loved and not pitied. So Gomer probably didn't have a very happy family life either, right? So think about that. Anyway, one of the metaphors is this tragic marriage. And Hosea expresses his sort of masculine sense of being dishonored by this woman who cheated on him. His honor has been impugned. He feels wrathful and indignant. Uh, by all rights, he could have her stoned, in fact. Uh, but he also feels uh, not only wrathful, but he feels hurt. He feels pain. He actually wants her back. He feels he yearns for when things were good. And he says God feels all of those things, too. God also thinks about his relationship with Israel, uh, that is, the way between a, a, a father and his children. And that's another prevailing metaphor. And the tenderness that a father has for his children when he's teaching them to walk, uh, carrying them in his arms. And now he says Ephraim, because Ephraim is another name for Israel. It's the name of the largest tribe of the Israelites. Now he says Ephraim, whom I taught to walk and who I held in my arms, has forgotten about me and done all these bad things. Um, so God is like a parent with a recalcitrant child filled with anger and wants to correct Ephraim. And the way a parent corrected a child back then could be to beat them, just as a husband could have a wife stoned or could beat his wife to correct her. A father could correct his children that way. But God feels too much tenderness and actually wants to forgive Ephraim. We're edging into the territory where you see why these metaphors for an 8th century Israelite cultural context may begin to be pro problematic when we think about God using these metaphors. These are profoundly patriarchal societies. Um, and what it means to be a father back then, or what it means to be a husband, is not this kind of, uh, you know, in, in terms of marriage, it's not the sort of two people coming together uh, as, as partners and working together and getting to know one another, sharing their life together, um, and gradually knowing and learning each other better and better. It's a very top-down, the husband is the lord of the wife kind of metaphor. And that is the way Hosea unrolls this metaphor in the book. Hosea wants to convey that Israel has been unfaithful. And that's what this, meta this marriage metaphor is so powerful has been unfaithful in various ways. They've been unfaithful religiously because idolatry is adultery, according to Hosea. If you worship other gods, you're committing adultery against your rightful husband, as it were, who is God, because you're in a covenant with God. So my people consult a piece of wood, he says, a wooden idol, for a spirit of adultery has led them astray, and they have played the whore, forsaking God. Uh, they say, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drinking ended, they indulged in orgies. 
and they loved lewdness more than glory. What this is alluding to here in the second passage is that uh, some of the native Canaanite traditions, they worshipped a god called Baal, uh, a fertility deity, and sometimes alongside a goddess named Asherah, who sent the rains at times. Uh, both of them had to do with fertility. And some of the ways that you would worship Baal had to do with uh, um, uh, ritual sex, that you would have orgies or you would have uh, sacred prostitutes who would uh, be in the temples and you would have sex. And Hosea is saying some of this kind of practice has crept into the worship of the Lord even. Or uh, at least when, the, yeah, when their drinking ended, they indulged in orgies. So he said this is uh, following other gods is tantamount to, to adultery. There's also political unfaithfulness to God, though. Uh, the monarchy is disloyalty in a way, he says. God complains, they set up kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but without my knowledge. He's saying that the kings of Israel, well, they just appointed kings for themselves instead of following God as king. We see a bit of this in Second Sam First Samuel, when the people are asking for a king originally, the, first, the very first time. Uh, God seems to be kind of personally affronted because God is king. There's this, this minor tradition that con continues even after the monarchy is established that God was meant to be king, but the people demanded a, a personal sort of political king. And in some way or another, that was sort of turning their back or lessening their trust in God. There's also sort of uh, infidelity, unfaithfulness to God in the international sphere. Um, if God is Israel's husband, in some sense, when Israel goes over to Egypt or goes to Assyria, it's like a wife visiting other men. She's, Israel at this time was making all of these international alliances with other nations, and there's a great deal of instability. These were shifting alliances because Israel knew Assyria is coming. Assyria was growing in power. They were threatening and eventually overpowering neighboring smaller states. And Israel knew that we're sort of next in line geographically. And so they would go over to Egypt and try to make alliances with them or with neighboring small kingdoms. Or they would go over instead to Assyria and praise them and offer them flattering gifts. And the Lord says, well, she's just flirting with all these other men who are not really her husbands. So this marriage metaphor, Gail Yee in the New Interpreter's Bible talks about the way metaphors function. And so this is a bit of modern liter literary theory that we can bring to our reading of Hosea. With a metaphor, you have two parts. You have the tenor, that is the lesser known thing, the thing that you're trying to get across, in other words, the point of the metaphor. But you have the vehicle. The vehicle is uh, the symbol being used for the metaphor. And it's assumed that the vehicle is already well known. We all know what we're talking about when I use this metaphor. So we all know what, uh, for instance, marriage looks like, right? It's a partnership between equals who come together and live their lives together in, in mutual respect, right? Well, actually, no, that's not what Hosea means. So the vehicle is dependent on cultural, like common shared cultural knowledge. Think about the metaphor of the pig. Right? In our culture, what do, you, what do I mean if I compare somebody to a pig? Is it flattering? Yeah. Probably not, right? It might mean what? Like greedy or dirty or gluttony. It could mean also that they're a, 
they think they're the great, like we use it for male chauvinist pig or sometimes just they're disrespectful of others. We sometimes use it that way. Well, in some cultures, the pig is considered a noble and honorable animal. So comparing someone to a pig might be a flattering image. So the vehicle is dependent upon cultural context. He uses marriage as the vehicle to convey the, less, the tenor, the lesser known aspect of how God feels. God feels hurt, betrayed, enraged, but yet deeply in love with Israel and longing for Israel, compassion even, warring almost within God with anger. This is what Hosea wants to get across, the tenor of the metaphor. But the vehicle is 8th century, highly patriarchal, and times even um, uh, what I would call harmful understandings of marriage in his culture, where uh, a husband might beat a wife to correct her, to, as it were, uh, help her see reason by punishing her into it. Um, and so the problems with this metaphor is that uh, Israel, uh, was, is that femininity becomes linked with evil and sin. That's the feminine figure in the metaphor. Uh, God becomes the masculine figure, and that is almost what justifies his mistreatment of Israel in order to make her see reason. Um, and so this can reinscribe harmful 8th century patriarchal patterns of uh, domestic abuse in modern day readers who are Christians going to their scripture to understand God's feelings about his people uh, by saying, okay, this is what a husband is supposed to do. It's right there in Hosea. But so that, well, there, this is a complicated, complicated prophet to read. And if I'd had more time, I would have been more sensitive. I actually would have probably prefaced our discussion with what we call trigger warnings. Because it's, it's, this is a difficult prophet to read, honestly, uh, emotionally. Um, I think Hosea gets at something profound. God has skin in the game. God is not uh, removed and uh, doesn't really care. And so he gets upset the same way a judge gets upset, right? You know, like a, a 1950s judge uh, and like a educational short, like you might have seen in high school, that tells, gives a stern lecture to the family of, ki of juvenile delinquents about how this was their fault too. This isn't kind of a paternalistic uh, but removed anger. Uh, this is the, the pain, the woundedness of a God who is actually affected in God's own emotional inner life by his relationship with his people. That is something profound. That is something that I don't know that we would have gotten in quite the same way without Hosea. But I still don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if the harm that can be done with reading Hosea doesn't almost at times overwhelm the good that we learn about God through it. So I just wanted to put this out there. This is not an unproblematic metaphor. So just to think about that, you know, it's helpful. It's got insights into God's heart, um, but it reinscribes ancient patriarchal structures and behaviors, which include spousal abuse is what I would call it, or in terms even of the parenting metaphor. Um, I don't beat my children to teach them how to love me better. Um, but that's what you did in 8th century Israel. Um, you were a bad parent if you didn't. You might perhaps even have been a bad husband if you didn't beat your wife in these circumstances. Um, honor almost demanded it. So 
you might look at it this way, using even the patriarchal nature of the metaphor. When God considers, no, I love Israel too much. I will repent of the evil I intend to do to her. God is willing at least to entertain the thought of sacrificing God's own honor because of his great love for Israel. Even though, as it were, everyone knows what he should do is punish. Still, it's a terrible, it can, it can uh, create this threat enticement pattern that runs all the way through Amos, where uh, God intends to punish Israel, but then entice her back with gifts, um, which uh, doesn't sound like a healthy relationship to me, um, in a human terms, at least. This is God we're talking about, but since the metaphor is there that it's human relationships, uh, does it inscribe those unhelpful, not very life-giving patterns in human behavior? So thank you for walking with me through these two earliest prophets, both prophesying during the time of Jeroboam, a time of great national uh, strength, but Hosea even after the time of Jeroboam, where there was a great instability, and they knew Assyria is a coming. So after the time of these two prophets, uh, Assyria sacks Samaria, carries away the Israelites, and they were essentially lost to history. We're not quite sure what happens to them after this point. So thank you. Thank you. All right.